Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of November 10th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Another change, another process. Emory Elementary holds final public hearing on Jeffco District Consolidation Plan by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Suspects of Lakewood Apartment Fire taken into custody by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Two championships in 20 hours. Mines soccer team wins RMAC tourney titles by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Pain behind the name, renaming Mount Evans. Why the name Mount Evans is hurtful to generations of Native Americans by Olivia Jewell Love of the Golden Transcript. Arvada gets festive for Halloween. Community comes together around weird, spectacular Halloween traditions by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press and following up with various articles. Arvada gets festive for Halloween. Community comes together around weird, spectacular Halloween traditions by Riley Dunn. For Amber Klein, Halloween decor started out small. A few decorations, a handful of inflatables. Now Klein and husband Bob Sramick's sprawling Halloween display has become a neighborhood tradition, bringing in folks old and young from near and far. Klein said she adds new pieces to the display every year, which has become a talking point in their neighborhood near Harlan Street and 76th Avenue. She added that her neighbors have joined in on the festivities, making the streets around their house a hot spot for trick-or-treaters. It's funny because there's always kids and adults who are like, what did you add this year? Klein said, our neighbors across the street always had a few decorations up. He started it and we both started adding. In the past, it's only been three or four of us that really decorated, and then last year we saw quite a bit more. After a slight dip in the trick-or-treaters and maybe holiday spirit due to the COVID-19 pandemic, Klein and Ceramic said they saw over 1,000 people stopping by their house this year, up from about 700 last year. In their neighborhood, the merrymaking seems to be contagious. This year, my husband and I went for a walk, and it was just incredible. The number of houses that have started decorating, Klein said. All up and down Harlan, almost every single house that had not one, but two, but not two, but multiple decorations. All up and down 76th. So many houses are decorating. I love it. I think it's just so much fun, and it's really cool seeing everyone get into the spirit. Klein continued. Maybe they just have, saw how much fun we were having. Lawn, and in Klein's case, roof, displays aren't the only way to get in on the festivities. Anne Boulan and her husband usually don scary costumes to surprise trick-or-treaters, but Boulan opted to go to a Lizzo concert this year and still wanted to get in on the festivities. The solution? Potatoes. I belong to this fish fan group, and someone posted in there that they were handing out potatoes, Boulan said, and I thought that was hilarious. My husband and I made bets. The first kid that come, came up totally picked a potato. We put the bowl out and heard a lot of, oh my gosh, there's a potato. Boulan said that although she wouldn't be able to participate in Halloween like she usually does this year, I think it's super important that people meet their neighbors, Boulan said. We moved here 12 years ago. It's nice to see neighborhood kids come back year after year. There's a number of kids who come back and say, that's the scary house. Hopefully next year, we'll be the potato house. Another Arvada resident, Alex McDowell Ingbritson, said her house saw between 200 and 300 trick-or-treaters this year, an increase from previous years. This was the busiest year we've had in seven years. McDowell Ingbritson said, My husband likes trying to scare the older kids, and I just love seeing all the kids out having a good time and dressed up in their costumes. I feel like Halloween is a good morale booster and a great way for the community to bond. You talk to people that you normally maybe wouldn't. 
Other parts of Arvada proved to be less fruitful on the candy distribution front. Kristen Green said that while she usually gets over 20 trick-or-treaters, this year brought a smaller crowd. One group comprised of three kids. Nevertheless, Green said she was thrilled to see any number of kids out celebrating the holiday. My favorite part of Halloween is the cute kids in animals and costumes, Green said. It brings me so much joy. After COVID had taken the events away for two years, it was relieving to see the kids and their families having fun. For Amber Klein, who moved to Arvada 12 years ago, Halloween offers an opportunity to meet neighbors and recoup the city's small-town feel. I fell in love with Arvada the moment I came here, Klein said. I felt unsafe the last couple of years. Crime has really gone up. For me, to be involved in the community, I think, is a sense of... If you're meeting someone face-to-face -face when you know the people who live around you, it provides a sense of safety, at least for me. Arvada always had that small-town feel to it, and as we grow, I think you can still keep that feeling within your own neighborhood. It doesn't have to be all of Arvada, Klein continued. Our neighborhood is our own little community. We all watch out for each other, know each other. I think that a lot of us want that feeling back. Klein added that she hoped her family family sprawling decorations would set an example for the community that could be passed down for future generations. I hope the kids that come to our house year after year are doing this for my grandkids, Klein said. Pain behind the name, renaming Mount Evans. Why the name Mount Evans is hurtful to generations of Native Americans by Olivia Jewell Love. When members of the Arapaho and Cheyenne tribes took west, look west from Denver to the distant peak of Mount Evans, they see a horrific reminder of the past. Anytime you have to hear of or speak of an individual who wanted to decimate your family or your tribe, it's really hard, said Governor Reggie Wasana of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. Since, since 1895, the mountain has been named for Colorado Territorial Governor John Evans. Settlers lobbied the legislature to honor his legacy, which it did through a measure that dubbed the more than 14,000-foot-high peak Mount Evans. But American Indian groups say Evans' legacy is forever disgraced by his role in enabling the Sand Creek Massacre. They are among the strongest advocates in a process that could change the mountain's name to Mount Blue Sky. On a cold November morning in 1864, U.S. Army Colonel John Shivington and elements of the Colorado Infantry Regiment of Volunteers and Regiment of Colorado Cavalry Volunteers launched an attack on Arapaho and Cheyenne civilians where they camped about 180 miles southeast of Denver. Over the course of eight hours, the troops slaughtered some 230 people, many of them women, children, and elderly. The following day, many soldiers wandered the area, committing atrocities on the dead. According to the National Park Service, which maintains a national historic site in the area where the events occurred. It's hard and it's tragic because those generations would have grown, would have lived and would have grown, Wasana said. The first meeting of the body, considering the name change, the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board took place on October 11th. More than 100 people attended, including Wasan and other Native representatives. Mount Blue Sky is a name the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes like. Quote, it was perfectly, it was something that fit both tribes perfectly, Wasana said. It fit the mountain as well. Others have suggested a name in the language of the Cheyennes and Arapahoes, but Wasana, or Arapahoes, but Wasana said those advocates could disrupt the unity the tribes are working to advance. Since we're Cheyenne and Arapaho, we have two languages, he said. We wanted everyone to agree. Since 2020, the tribes have formally petitioned for Mount Blue Sky, an effort joined by the Wilderness Society, a nonprofit conservation group. There are others who have lobbied to keep the name Mount Evans, but with a twist, naming it for descendants of Evans' family. Others have suggested Mount Rosalie, an unofficial name of the mountain before it bore Evans' name. Both names are steeped in settler culture. T. 
Tink Tinker, a professor emeritus at Denver's Iliff School of Theology, is a member of the Osage tribe. He has Osage tribe. He has dedicated much of his career to teaching the cultures, history, and religions, religious traditions of American Indians. Settlers, Tinker said, were colonizers in American Indian homelands. When they came, they renamed everything. It's not unusual for the colonizer to name things after themselves, he said. The impetus was to name things so they belonged to the colonizer. The Arapaho Cheyenne and Wilderness Society petition to change the name includes a statement signed by Evans in 1864, quote, I, John Evans, governor of Colorado Territory, do issue this proclamation authorizing all citizens of Colorado, either individually or in such parties as they may organize, to go in pursuit of all hostile Indians on the plains, to kill and destroy, as enemies of the country, wherever they may be found, all such hostile Indians. Historians say that statement helped set the tone for the events that eventually led up to the massacre. Andrew Masich is the president and CEO of the Senator John Hines History Center, a Smithsonian Institute affiliate in Pennsylvania. He said the massacre began when many men from the tribe were out hunting. This left the most vulnerable at risk of being attacked by Shivington's troops near a bend in Big Sandy Creek on Colorado's plains. Quote, the women and children began to run up the dry creek bed, Masich said. Many tried to dig themselves into holes into the sand to escape the violence. It was a slaughter, probably one of the most horrific massacres in the history of the United States, Masich said. Afterward, Congress Joint Committee on the Conduct of War wrote this, sh this of Shivington's conduct toward the peaceful tribes. Having full knowledge of their friendly character, having himself been instrumental to some extent in placing them in their position of fancied security, he took advantage of the inapprehension and defenseless condition to gratify the worst passions that ever cursed the heart of man. The committee in Washington also rebuked Evans for his, quote, prevarication and shuffling. In his testimony of Sand Creek events and his failure to acknowledge that what transpired was a massacre, Secretary of State William Seward subsequently forced Evans to resign as governor. But when Evans returned to Colorado, residents cheered his arrival, according to History Colorado. Quote, Throughout the rest of his life, the organization writes, Evans never chastised Shivington nor the soldiers involved in the massacre. He continued to maintain that it had been necessary for the development of Colorado and the West. The organization quotes Evans' words in an interview that came 20 years after the massacre. Quotes, the benefit to Colorado of that massacre, as they call it, was very great for it ridded the plains of the Indians, Evans said. The naming board next meets on November 17th over Zoom, and the conversation about the name change will continue. The link to the meeting can be found on the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board's website. Two championships in 20 hours. Mines soccer team wins RMAC tourney titles by Corinne Westerman. November 4th and 5th were golden hours for the Colorado School of Mines soccer players as the men's and women's teams were crowned 2022 RMAC tournament champions at home less than 24 hours apart. Both teams won Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference regular season titles and were seeded number one in their respective conference tournaments. Both sets of ore diggers hope to end the postseason undefeated by winning the NCAA Division II tournament title. The women's tournament kicks off NCAA tournament play November 13th at home, while the men's team plays November 12th in California. For the RMAC tournament, the men's team had a shorter road to the championship, playing only two games. The Ore Diggers won their October 30th semifinal game against UCCS thanks to a second-half goal by sophomore midfielder Quinn Collins. 
The November 4th championship, a game against CSU Pueblo, was 3-3 to after extra time, so a penalty kick shootout decided the winner. Mines won the shootout 9-8 with freshman midfielder Mark Levin making the clincher. Meanwhile, the women's team needed three W's to take the RMAC tournament crown, and the Oradiggers got their first against CSU Pueblo on October 30th. The November 2nd semifinal against MSU Denver went into overtime after the game was tied 1-1 at the end of regulation. The Oradiggers outscored the Roadrunners 2-1 in overtime to advance to the championship game against Regis. Playing on the same field where the men's team had won only a few hours earlier, the Ora Diggers scored two goals in the 65th and 75th minutes to beat the Regis and take home their tournament crowns. The NCAA Division II men's and women's soccer tournament brackets were announced November 7th with both sets of Ora Diggers competing. The women's team was named the number two seed in the South Central region and will host the first two games in its bracket. Number three, Angelo State, and number six, UCCS, will play November 11th at Sturmall Stadium, and then Mines will play the winner at 1 p.m. November 13th. Both games will be available to stream on the RMAC network. Meanwhile, men's team was named the number five seed in Super Region 4. It plays at number four seed Cal State Dominguez Hills at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, November 12th. That game will stream on the CCCA network. For more information, visit MindsAthletics.com. Another change, another process. Emory Elementary holds final public hearing on Jeffco District Consolidation Plan by Andrew Frelly. Emory Elementary, slated for closure, along with 15 other elementary schools, if the Jeffco Board of Education votes to pass the district's plan on November 10th, had its final individual opportunity to speak out November 3rd. This was also the final public hearing before the vote, and parents and teachers alike spoke out against the consolidations. Many families and teachers at Emory see the possibility of consolidations as a broken promise from the district as they have faced consolidations before when Rose Stein Elementary originally closed, pushing families to what is now Emory. Quote, I've been at Emory forever since my girls were at Rose Stein, said Anna Porras, a parent who spoke at the hearing. We were told to leave. It's going to close but it's still there. We're at it again. Quote, it was really tough for us to move from Stein and the community felt it and they said we are going to make this a viable dual language program at that particular school, explained Emory teacher Kendra Smith. Now she said, I feel like the community is being re-traumatized again. The dual language program is another major concern for Emory families as much as the school and community is Hispanic. The district has said that the dual language program will move to Lasley, but parents are still worried. Porras began to cry when she tried to express the stress of finding another dual language school nearby, wishing the district had given parents more time so they weren't rushing. You're not giving us another way to see district as liars. You're not. She continued going on to say similar parents similar to parents in past meetings, that it feels like the decision has been made before it even came up for parents to speak out. One parent, Christian Ruby, spoke specifically about Emory's community being welcoming compared to other schools where his kids were bullied for speaking Spanish. The difference is just tremendous at Emory, he said. At this was a public hearing. The board did not respond to community members' comments, only listened. The final vote is at 5 p.m. November 10th at the board's regular meeting. Quote, let's be thoughtful about this decision and not have the same ripple effects that happened when they moved us from Stein over to O'Connell, said Smith, referring to Emory's previous name. We don't necessarily care about the walls that we are in. We want to make sure that our community is not ripped apart.
Suspects of Lakewood apartment fire taken into custody by Andrew Fraley. The two juvenile suspects wanted on suspicion of starting an apartment fire in Lakewood that killed a mother and her 10-year-old daughter on Halloween were arrested November 6th. According to Lakewood Police Department Public Information Officer John Romero, the fire appeared intentionally set and warrants have been out put out for the two juveniles whose names will not be released because of their age for first-degree murder and first-degree arson. The Tiffany Square apartment building burned down at 4 a.m. October 31st, leaving nine injured and two dead. Three who were injured were transported to a local hospital, a mother, father, and child, according to the West Metro Fire. The two found dead were Kathleen Payton, 31, and her daughter Jasmine Payton Aguayo, 10, according to Romero. At least 14 units were damaged by the fire, with residents of all 32 units being displaced. The American Red Cross is assisting residents in finding shelter, according to West Metro Fire. Jeffco officials recommend boosters caution as COVID-19 lingers, as by Corinne Westman. COVID-19 is still in play, local health officials warn, but Colorado hasn't seen as big of a spike in cases as it has the past two falls. Jody Irwin, Deputy Director of Jeffco Public Health, explained COVID-19 case counts and positivity rates have gone up slightly around Colorado amid cold and flu season. During a November 1st update with the Jeffco commissioners, Irwin stated Jeffco's trends have been similar, with slight increases in positivity rates and hospitalizations. Omicron has been a prevalent strain, but there are others going around as well, Irwin described. While these trends are something to watch, Irwin said he was optimistic overall. We don't see the sharp increase that we have at this time over the past two years, he continued. With the winter holidays approaching, Irwin hoped Jeffco residents would get their booster COVID-19 vaccinations if they haven't already and take other precautions ahead of any travel or holiday gatherings. Getting vaccinated is about productivity for me at this point, Irwin said. I have plans for the holidays and I want to protect those higher risk people around me. Commissioner Andy Kerr commented how he recently received his booster at one of the Jeffco public health sites and said the staff was very efficient. Now he said he felt ready to celebrate the holidays safely. Irwin said walk-in appointments are available at multiple locations around the county, including Jeffco public health sites, pharmacies, and other retailers. For more information, visit jeffco.us slash public dash health or call 303 232-6301. COVID-19 protocols. Those who've been exposed to someone who's had COVID-19 should wear a mask for 10 full days after exposure, according to state health officials. Free COVID-19 tests are available at several Jeffco public library branches. For those who are experiencing symptoms and or test positive for COVID-19, the state's website explains that most people need to isolate for five days followed by five days of precaution. After five full days of isolation, those impacted should wear masks for five more days or until they test negative twice, two days apart. Anyone who still has a fever on the sixth day of isolation or if symptoms haven't improved should continue isolating until they've had no fever for at least 24 hours without fever reducing medicine or until symptoms approve. For anyone who didn't have symptoms when they tested positive but started feeling them in the days after the test, the five days of isolation should reset from when the symptoms started. More information is available at covid19.colorado.gov. Toy Drive Staff Report Larry H. Miller Dealerships is hosting its 8th annual holiday toy drive benefiting the Denver Santa Claus shop. Donations can be dropped off at any of the nine 
Larry H. Miller dealerships across the Denver metro area through December 3rd. The two dealerships in Lakewood are Larry H. Miller Ford Lakewood, 11595 West 6th Avenue, Lakewood, 80215. Larry H. Miller Volkswagen, Lakewood, 8303 West Colfax Ave, Lakewood, 80214. Toys for donation should be new or gently loved for children ages newborn through 11 years old. A wish list is available at amzn.to slash 3tx9tab. The Denver Santa Claus Shop is a local volunteer-run nonprofit that has been benefiting children through its toy drive and distribution for 92 years. To make a monetary donation or learn more about the organization, visit DenverSantaClausShop.org. To learn more about Larry H. Miller dealerships or to find a list of locations where toys can be dropped off outside of Denver, visit outside of Denver proper, visit lhmauto.com. Google Fiber coming to Lakewood by Andrew Fraley. Construction will soon start to allow Google Fiber, a gigabit internet service provider, to reach the homes of Lakewood residents. In 2019, residents voted to reestablish the city's ability to provide services like high-speed internet and to explore how to improve the city's internet offerings. An agreement with Google Fiber came out of it. Everyone needs to be connected today, whether it's for school or work, and I think adding Google Fiber in Lakewood is a great step in the right direction, said Lakewood Mayor Adam Paul in a statement. Internet connectivity is as important as having water and electricity and we need to ensure that we have robust systems in place to serve our residents and our businesses. According to Lakewood Public Information Officer Stacy Olton, construction for Google Fiber will begin in 2023 and is expected to take several years to complete the network across the city. But service will be available as segments of the network are completed. Lakewood's webpage of frequently asked questions on Google Fiber specifies that they will be notify they will notify residents and businesses as construction takes place nearby quote through door hangers street signage cones and other safety and informational efforts construction progress can be found on google fiber's website with construction crews in roadways and yards that are part of the city liquid also specifies that for multifamily units and apartment buildings Property owners and managers must sign access agreements with Google Fiber for residents to be able to sign up for the service. Jeffco Interfaith Partners Pumpkin Patch Patches raises $110,000 for charities. Proceeds from 8,000 pumpkins sold by volunteers in Arvada and Lakewood to benefit Habitat for Humanity Pumpkins USA by Riley Dunn. Local civic groups and churches in Jefferson County raised $110,000 for charity through pumpkin patches in Lakewood and Arvada this year. Jeffco Interfaith Partners sold 8,000 pumpkins at two volunteer-run pumpkin patches, the proceeds of which will benefit Pumpkins USA and Habitat for Humanity Metro Denver. This year marked the 23rd year Jeffco Interfaith Partners hosted its pumpkin patch which began in Lakewood but expanded to the second location in Arvada over a decade ago. 60% of the Pumpkin Patch proceeds will go to Pumpkins USA, a nonprofit grower on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. The remaining 40% will go to Habitat for Humanity, Metro Denver. Jeffco Interfaith Partners is made up of a number of community and church groups, including the Arvada Jefferson Kiwanis Club, Arvada and Green Mountain United Methodist Churches, Jefferson Unitarian Church, St. Joseph's Episcopal Church, Arvada and Front Range Stake of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and other religious organizations. The pumpkin patches are entirely volunteer-run. Carolyn Williams and her husband, Alan, have volunteered at the Arvada pumpkin patch for the past 15 years and ran that site this year. Williams said she initially got involved after her youngest child went off to college and she wanted to be part of a good cause. Quote, our youngest child was going off to college, Williams said. 
It was an empty nest project. And parents are pretty active in the fall. We know there would be a big gap and it felt like a good thing we could help out with. It became something so much bigger. Williams also said the community feel of the pumpkin patch keeps her coming back since folks go with the intention of supporting a good cause. Everyone is so generous and wonderful about supporting Habitat, Williams said. Many people tell us they come every year, kids bring their families. It's a tradition for a lot of people, but we get a lot of new people every year and they seem pleased. People are willing to pay a premium above grocery store prices because they know what they're doing and why. Williams continued. Jeffco Interfaith Partners has been working to support housing in Jefferson County for over 25 years. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. I'm Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading Grocery Store Opens at Place Bridge Academy as part of DPS's Community Hubs effort by Desiree Matherin. And Take a First Look at This New Park in El Rio Swansea by Kevin Beatty. From Westward, I'll be reading Denver's Most and Least Popular Radio Stations Now by Michael Roberts. And Changing Skies, a CU student curated journal gets creative about climate change by Katie Cheshire. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Grocery store opens at Place Bridge Academy as part of DPS's Community Hubs effort by Desiree Matherin. Large swaths of Denver's neighborhoods are in food deserts. About 33% of Denver's population is food insecure and, as of 2020, more than 23,000 children in the county lack access to consistent meals, according to Feeding America and City Data. Denver Public Schools, in connection with Mayor Michael Hancock's office, is attempting to alleviate some of those needs by placing grocery stores at their new community hub locations. The stores will provide free food, toiletries, and sneakers to local families throughout the region. Amazon and Aetna will finance the stores and they'll be operated by Gooder, an Atlanta-based sustainable waste management and hunger relief company that focuses on pop-up grocery stores, food delivery, and school-based stores. It's not your typical food bank in which you can go ahead and take X amount of cans, said DPS Superintendent Dr. Alex Marrero at a Wednesday event celebrating the openings. This is, what do you desire to eat tonight? Guardian and student can pick out ingredients, recipes, and have a bonding moment. If we can eradicate hunger as a barrier that students have, then we'll allow those students the opportunity that many other students have already. That's equity beyond what we do in the classroom. On Wednesday, city officials and community stakeholders gathered at Place Bridge Academy in the Washington, Virginia Vale neighborhood, which will host the first of the two stores. Colfax Elementary will also host another grocery store. Inside an annexed trailer toward the back of the campus, the store features a collection of fresh, fresh and frozen goods that are culturally relevant to the area. There's halal options, vegan and vegetarian selections, and fresh mangoes and squashes on display. In another room, there are racks of clothing, sneakers, shampoo, and baby diapers. Gooder founder and CEO Jasmine Crow said the available items are all intentional and provide a sense of dignity to the families that need the service. Before starting Gooder, Crow handed out meals and food to those experiencing homelessness using her own money and making the most of her couponing skills. There, she began thinking of how much food is consistently wasted in the country and what could be a logistical way to help solve food injustice. She also began thinking about what type of food is handed to people. Crow noted that at some pantries, people get a gallon of barbecue sauce and snacks without any meat, rice, or some type of cohesive idea for a meal. Starting Gooder, Crow said the goal was to bring food to where people needed it and also provide food combinations that made sense. The big concept I had when I was building Gooder and even when I was feeding people on the streets was dignity, Crow said. 
How can we give people the opportunity to have access to something they need and want without saying, hey, here's a box of food, take it. They don't know what's in that box. They get home and now they have to marry what you gave them and try to go to other food banks and pantries to make something. Here, a mom can come in and say, okay, I'm going to make some spaghetti for the family that will last two or three days and then I'll come back again. The concept of putting a store at a school is one way to meet people where they already are, Crow said, and could potentially be an access point for kids needing a snack throughout the day. Putting the stores at DPS's community hubs was born from collaboration between Marrero and Hancock. During the opening Wednesday, Hancock shared that during a trip to Atlanta, he was able to connect with Crow to learn more about the organization. He introduced it to Marrero, who said the stores would go perfectly in the hubs. The Community Hubs program started this year, and the goal, Marrero said, was to provide more services to students and families. There are six hubs, and each will be tailored to provide the area's specific needs, whether that be GED classes, ESL classes for adults, citizenship classes, workforce development, college prep, or gang outreach. Five of the hubs are located in schools, including Place Bridge Academy, Johnson Elementary, and Colfax Elementary. Colfax is currently experiencing low enrollment and is being considered for closure, but Marrero said not all of the hubs are in schools, like the hub inside the Focus Points Family Resource Center in El Rio Suancia. He added that the Colfax Elementary hub would continue to operate even if the school does end up closing. Some of the hubs are also run with the help of neighborhood organizations like the Montbello Organizing Committee and Westward Unidos, two groups currently working to add more accessible grocery stores to their food deserts. An area is considered a food desert when at least 500 people, or 33% of the area population, lives more than one mile away from a supermarket or large grocery store, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Similar to the goal of Gooder, Marrero said these hubs meet people where they are, providing them a nearby trusted location for their social needs. DPS's goal is eventually for all six hub locations to host a grocery store, something that would go to alleviating food insecurity in the surrounding neighborhoods, especially for students. Hancock and Marrero both noted at Wednesday's event that when they were students, school meals were sometimes their only meals of the day. I was one of those children who walked into a classroom every day hungry, but could not think about anything except when that clock hit 1020 because that's when we were going to get lunch, Hancock said. Marrero added, Where I come from, you dreaded snow days slightly because that meant you weren't going to eat the meal that was quite frankly the only hot meal that you had for that day planned. The stores will operate during school hours. Parents, guardians, and students will be able to grab a free reusable bag and choose items that suit their needs. Guardians will also be encouraged to sign up for the other services provided at the hub. Everything is free. No teacher can ever teach through hunger, Crow said. If you have families that don't have cars and they live in food deserts, which right now more than 40% of America lives in a food desert, you have this logistics box that keeps so many people from having access to food. That's why it's important to bring food where we already have people, to bring and create these community opportunities where we have students that are riding the bus to school or walking to school and now have the ability to not only get an education, but to also get food. Take a first look at this new park in El Rio Swansea by Kevin Beatty. North Denver will soon have some new green land, but don't go calling it a park. It's not officially a park, but rather six acres of open space, Jenna Garcia, spokesperson for the National Western Center Authority, told us. It therefore does not have an official park name. We affectionately refer to it as the Riverfront. Marcy Lochran, spokesperson for the mayor's office at the National Western Center, said the open space will be ready for visitors in the spring. It's replacing what once was a tangle of livestock pens and infrastructure that completely blocked access to the South Platte River. We moved 14,000 linear feet, nearly three miles, of freight railroad tracks away from the east bank of the South Platte River. The Delgany Wastewater Interceptor, two parallel seven-foot-tall sewer pipes, was also relocated and placed underground. 
The steep east bank has been graded and widened, Lochran told us. It will also help prevent future flooding and help filter out pollutants that can be harmful to public health in the river habitat. Those buried sewer lines are now doing double duty, as it were. The campus will draw almost 90% of its heating and cooling from thermal energy gleaned from the pipes. Visible now at the riverfront is a little amphitheater, some picnic tables, and a slide. Garcia said new bridges stretching west across the Platte will let people walk or bike in from the South Platte Trail and Globeville. The park is meant to be a new front door to the campus, which she said will dovetail with changes to Washington Street. For now, it looks like there are still a lot of industrial lots blocking the way. And though people will be able to get close to the South Platte's eastern banks for the first time in a very long time, it doesn't mean there will be much swimming there. Tammy Vigil, spokesperson for the city's Department of Public Health and Environment, told us that 1. City ordinances prohibit swimming in city streams or lakes, and 2. E. coli levels in the river, especially in portions close to the National Western Center that are downstream from the city's center, make it inadvisable to take a dip. While the river isn't in great shape for humans, some recent wildlife studies in the area have suggested the animals are doing okay for now. The following articles are from Westward. Denver's Most and Least Popular Radio Stations Now by Michael Roberts. The ratings for Denver radio stations have seen some significant shifts over the past three months when a new outlet reached number one and other popular stations swapped places. Further down the roster, big gains were registered by a leading sports talker, while a public radio favorite that became a focus of controversy saw its audience share slide. These are among the biggest takeaways from updated numbers related to radio listeners in Denver, the country's 18th largest market, from Nielsen, the industry's leading surveyor. Most of Nielsen's ratings are considered proprietary, in part because they're so granular. They're broken down by age and gender, so that service subscribers targeting a specific slice of the audience pie for instance, females between the ages of 25 and 54, can tell if they're reaching these listeners and use the data to sell advertising to businesses that cater to them. Stats are also provided for each section of the day, with the mornings and afternoons the most important, traditionally the times when people are driving to or from work. As a result, the only ratings Nielsen publishes measure all listeners age 6 or older Monday through Sunday from 6 a.m. to midnight using a metric called a share, which the company defines as the percentage of those listening to radio in the MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, who are listening to a particular radio station. That makes the public information extremely general, since it doesn't differentiate between a station's most popular shows and those that are barely heard, or give an indication about whether the audience is so dominated by specific types of listeners that even modest ratings can pay off for advertisers. What these ratings do reveal, however, is the overall popularity of a station. In July, the top finisher was KYGO-FM, the longtime voice of country music in Denver, which is owned by Bonneville International, a media company based in Salt Lake City. During that month, the station scored a 7.6 share among listeners, more than a full point higher than its sibling station, KOSI-FM, which came in with a 6.2 share. But in October, KYGO's listenership share tumbled to 5.4, landing it in fourth place, well behind the new champ, Alice 105.9, an adult contemporary specialist owned by Philadelphia's Odyssey. Alice put up a 6.9 share, well, well ahead of KOSI, which remained at 6.2. Oldies purveyor KXKL, also known as Cool 105, jumped from 5th to 3rd with a 5.8 share, while classic rocking KQMT, known as The Mountain, moved in the opposite direction. Its audience share went from 5.8 in July to 5.1 in October, landing it in 5th place. How many listeners do these numbers represent? That's a complicated question, and even a rough estimate requires some math. 
According to Nielsen, shares count average quarter hour persons, or the average number of persons listening to a particular station for at least five minutes during a 15-minute period. In rough terms, then, Alice's 6.9 share translates to 6.9% of Denver radio listeners, on average, from early in the morning to the witching hour over seven days. And even in the age of music apps such as Spotify and satellite radio, this figure is substantial. A 2021 Nielsen Media Research study found that 88% of Americans, or around 293 million people, listen weekly to terrestrial radio, the term applied to stations that reach ears by way of old-fashioned broadcasting towers. The total is said to exceed those who use Facebook each week. Apply that 88% to Nielsen's estimate of Greater Denver's population, 2,796,400, and it adds up to approximately 2.46 million. Multiply that by 6.9%, and the result is an Alice audience estimate of nearly 170,000 people per week. Music stations again dominated the Denver ratings. The first news-slash-talk broadcaster to appear on the October rundown is KCFR, the flagship of Colorado Public Radio, which occupies 8th place, an improvement by one slot. In 9th, up from 15th, is 104.3 The Fan, which has made headlines in September and October by replacing ex-Bronco Tyler Columbus, who had been partnering with Darren D. Mac McKee on the weekday afternoon staple, The Drive, with another super, former Super Bowl victor, Derek Wolf, This move likely contributed to its audience share jumping from 2.6 to 4.1. The news wasn't nearly as good for KUVO, the area's main radio source for jazz. The exit of four longtime KUVO hosts over the course of 2022 blew up in September, and the following month's share came in at 0.8, less than half of July's 1.9. The October list for Denver includes 39 stations, and several of them are spin-offs from other outlets, such as the HD2 offering linked to hip-hop R&B specialist KS107.5. Two places were filled by signals from KXDP, a low-powered analog TV station whose audio can be received at 87.75 FM, A third that made the grade in July fell short this time around. Nielsen doesn't publish ratings information for non-subscribers, and there are a lot of them. The Radio Locator website counts 106 radio stations that may be within listening range of Denver, Colorado. And May is the operative word, since 11 stations from Colorado Springs and 5 from Pueblo are featured. But the list includes 60-plus stations that are definitely part of the market. 32 in Denver proper, plus 5 registered to Golden, 4 apiece from Boulder and Lakewood, 3 from Aurora, 2 from both Inglewood and Littleton, and 1 each in Wheat Ridge, Timnath, Centennial, Greenwood Village, Lafayette, Watkins, Castle Rock, and Parker. Included are 9 stations classified as Christian and 14 as religious, and if any of them generated even a tenth of a 6-plus share, Nielsen isn't telling. Changing Skies, a CU student-curated journal, gets creative about climate change by Katie Cheshire. Climate change is a huge issue, and it's something that I think everyone should be talking about in some regard, says Ian Hall, editor-in-chief of Changing Skies, a student-curated nonfiction journal focusing on climate change. It was really something that we definitely focused on in the past, but it wasn't really until last fall that the team kind of came up with the idea of, well, hey, why don't we run a separate title devoted entirely to all this good climate change work that we facilitate? The journal is curated, designed, and published by the University of Colorado Boulder students, who also run Hindsight, another creative nonfiction journal without a specific climate bent. It was previously known as Journal 2020. Hall, a junior studying anthropology and media production, joined the staff after the concept for Changing Skies received a funding boost boost through Scott King and Mission Zero, the company King founded at CU to fund and support students working on climate action. 
King started ReadyTalk, a communication services company, with his brother and then sold it and retired early before he realized that his anxiety about the state of the world was too high to let him sit still. He wanted to use some of the money he'd made to help students at his alma mater explore climate change and possible solutions. Aside from helping the team with funding, Hall says, Mission Zero stays out of Changing Skies operations. All of the work in this first edition was selected by the students. The journal includes artwork, memoirs, poems, creative scholarship, and narrative journalism. Any nonfiction work about climate change was eligible, and anyone could apply. The result is a journal that runs over 100 pages, with work from around the globe, including Central and South America. But Changing Skies hits close to home, too. It includes a reflection on the Marshall Fire by Lonnie Pierce, Associate Director for First Year Writing at the University, whose home burned down in the devastating December 2021 blaze. Experts say that climate change contributed to the ferocity of the fire. Hall is proud of this first edition, which conveys the personal nature behind a technical issue. A lot of the conversation on climate change skews more toward a dry and an academic preview, which there certainly is nothing wrong with, he says. However, a lot of the time, what is lost in that kind of communication is the urgency of what those numbers represent and the real impact that those numbers have if left untreated. The best thing we can do is show those people very real stories and how those stories are affecting the person that wrote it and everyone around them. Copies of Changing Sky will be available at the launch event, where Scott King will be the featured speaker, 7 p.m. Friday, November 11th, room 235, University Memorial Center, Boulder. Admission is free. What a trip. Coloradans approve landmark psychedelics measure by Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. Feeling the fungi... Colorado voters have approved a groundbreaking statewide measure to decriminalize natural psychedelics and create a legal access model for psilocybin mushrooms and potentially other psychedelics. This is a truly historic moment. Colorado voters saw the benefit of regulated access to natural medicines, including psilocybin, so people with PTSD, terminal illness, depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues can heal says Kevin Matthews and Veronica Lightning Horse Perez, two proponents of Proposition 122, which captured 51% of the total vote and counting. The measure now sets a timeline of creating a 21-plus legal access framework for psychedelic mushrooms by late 2024, while also immediately decriminalizing mushrooms, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, excluding peyote. The passage of the measure creates the possibility of building a legal access framework for these other substances, too, by June of 2026. New Approach PAC, a D.C.-based group that has advocated for cannabis legalization and helped fund a psychedelic mushroom medical access initiative in Oregon, pushed for Proposition 122, contributing over $3 million to the Natural Medicine Colorado Campaign. The campaign hired Matthews, the person who led the successful decriminalized Denver effort in 2019, to help get the Natural Medicine Health Act through. The proposal also gives the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies the authority to create a legal framework for psychedelics access. DORA is now charged with licensing healing centers, where people can go to consume psychedelics for therapeutic purposes in a supervised setting. Facilitators will be able to assist people in integrating what comes up during a psychedelics session. They'll be licensed by DORA and can visit people at their homes or in approved medical care facilities to facilitate psychedelics treatment. The initiative also calls for the establishment of a natural medicine advisory board, whose membership will be appointed by the governor and will potentially include individuals with expertise in harm reduction, natural medicine therapy, and religious use of natural medicines, among other areas. Following recommendations from the Natural Medicine Advisory Board, DORA will have the authority to legalize access centers for other decriminalized substances, such as DMT and ibogaine, in 2026. 
Proposition 122 was able to withstand some very vocal opposition, which began early after it made the ballot. Certain grassroots advocates who had pushed psychedelic mushroom decriminalization in Denver opposed Prop 122, believing that full decriminalization of psychedelics had to come well before any legal access framework was established. The risks for over-commercialization and inequity, pitfalls of marijuana legalization in Colorado, were too strong with this proposal, they argued. Two of those advocates, Melanie Rose Rogers and Nicole Forrester, attempted to land a simple psychedelics decriminalization measure on the ballot, but failed to get enough signatures. Instead, they spoke out against Proposition 122, encouraging voters to check the no bubble on their ballots. We cannot forget that the decriminalization and personal use protections are the most important part of this measure, and unfortunately the most vulnerable. Many of us who voted no support decriminalization, but believe the measure should have stopped there rather than prioritizing regulated access, Forrester said, as Proposition 122 looked increasingly likely to pass. Some indigenous groups that use some of the natural drugs for ceremonies also expressed concerns. Proposition 122 Natural Medicine Health Act is hurtful, deceitful, exclusionary, and oppressive towards all people disproportionately impacted by the drug war and those who have been targeted for practicing traditional spiritual ways with plant and fungi medicines under oppressive and criminalization policies warned the Native Coalition against the Natural Medicine Health Act. The measure also attracted opposition for more traditional drug warriors, such as those who have been warning about the negative effects of high-potency marijuana and concentrates in Colorado. Passage of Proposition 122 brings a question of who will decide what is medicine in the future, says Luke Neforitus, who established Protect Colorado's Kids to formally oppose Proposition 122. Twice now, Colorado has defied both federal law and the FDA and favored the promises of billionaires and entrepreneurs marketing their latest drug fascinations as medicine. The question we must ask ourselves is, whom do we trust more with medicine? Billionaire entrepreneurs or doctors and scientists? But the proponents of Proposition 122 are ready for what's next. In their statement, Matthews and Perez conclude, We look forward to working with the regulatory and medical experts and other stakeholders to implement this new law. Ball Arena Box Office Downsized Store Growing by Katie Cheshire If you have a problem with your ticket for a ball arena event, don't look for help at the box office. In fact, don't look for the box office at all. Its former home is being renovated to provide more space for merchandise touting the home teams. The former box office on the south side of the arena is now an entrance to Altitude Authentics, a store that connects to the Grand Atrium and main entrance. Construction began right after the Colorado Avalanche, which plays its home games at Ball Arena, secured the Stanley Cup this summer. Altitude Authentics sells merchandise for the teams that play in the arena, primarily the Avs and the Denver Nuggets, the local National Basketball Association team, but also the Colorado Mammoth, the professional lacrosse team owned by the Kroenke family. Merchandise for the Colorado Rapids, the major league soccer team that the family owns, also makes an appearance. Products for sale include team-branded jerseys, t-shirts, hats, balls, and other novelties. Matt Bell, Senior Vice President of Venue Operations for Kroenke Sports and Entertainment, says that the re- renovation project should be done soon. Once it's completed, there will be a small kiosk by the store that serves as a new box office. But for now, anybody with an issue should head for the customer service desk in the Grand Atrium, next to the Toyota vehicle on display. We learned a lot through COVID, Bell says. As we're reopening, we're reducing touch points, and then ticketing is moving more into a digital age. We found that the existing space of the box office wasn't representative of the current environment. Every event at Ball Arena is now fully digital. Anyone who needs help finding their seats can ask employees throughout the arena, 
So the downsized box office area will be reserved for those having problems with their digital tickets or the delivery of their tickets if they were purchased through Ticketmaster. That's the only verified ticket seller for events at Ball Arena. The box office won't be able to do much for people who use third-party ticketing services. Arena staffers have been able to help everyone who needs it with the temporary setup, Bell notes, and are looking forward to the new space. We're anxious to see how that flows, but we anticipate that that to go well. We're always here to provide customer service no matter where it is, and that will never change. How Nora Castillo's body was identified after 35 years by Michael Roberts.